This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following guest teaching by Bethany Allen is part five in the series, Practicing the Way, Scripture. How was Jesus able to draw from the Bible's wisdom at a moment's notice? At peace or in conflict, even in agony or during traumatic moments, he had dedicated the scriptures to memory. Memorizing biblical literature is not an exercise reserved for obsessive scholars. It's a matter of allowing God's words to permeate your heart and mind so thoroughly they stay there. Hello, Van City, and thank you for having me. Um, I am making my appearance again with you for, feels like the hundredth time, but this time I get to do it over technology. Either way, I am so glad to get to be with you today. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Now today we're going to be continuing and also ending your scripture practice. So if you've missed any of the teachings in this series, I would encourage you just to go back and listen to them. This is one of my favorite series we did at Bridgetown, and I'm betting you're all feeling that way as well. Now over the past few weeks, you have gotten a pretty good glimpse at Jesus's life and his relationship to the scriptures. You've seen the ways he's used them in relationship to teaching, interacting with the teachers or the Pharisees of the day, his disciples, and even Satan himself. And there's no doubt that the scriptures played a central and essential role uh, both in Jesus's life and his ministry. Now maybe you're thinking, well, he was a rabbi. True, he was a teacher of the Torah, so technically it was his job. But I would also argue that upon closer examination, uh, the study of the scriptures for Jesus measured far beyond academia to a more compelling and personal reality. For Jesus, it seems, scripture was not as much a tool or an instrument or a weapon as it was part of how he viewed and interacted both with God and the world. Both from a historical knowledge of rabbis to the account we're given here in the Gospels, we know that the integration of Scripture in Jesus' life was paramount to his work with his disciples and to those around him. Meaning, there was and probably is much more to the practice of knowing the Scriptures than meets the eye. Now, how many of you, and I know you're in your rooms or your Zoom um, spaces with other people, but I am curious, how many of you were part of a church from a young age? Just go ahead and like raise your hand or do whatever it is that you need to do. Yes, Cam, I see that hand. And how many of you had to memorize scripture in your Sunday school or in your Wednesday night program? Maybe some of you were a part of Awanas or some kind of variation of that. Those were very good times, at least for some of us. Um, When I think back on that time in my own life, I think, why was I willing to memorize so many things for so little candy? Honestly, I feel a little disappointed and myself about that. But all that to say, life in America here is really different than life in the ancient Near East. It's hard for us to imagine Jesus at Awanas, Jesus as a spark or a cubby, or meeting Bible man. And if you don't know who I'm referring to, just be blessed. Yet what we do know is that like many of us from a young age, Jesus spent time in the temple learning and meditating and memorizing the scriptures making this practice of getting the scriptures both into his heart and his mind a significant priority. So often, when we think of scripture being integrated into our lives, we think of fluorescent lights or floral flashcards. We think of all the impossibilities of scripture being that accessible to us. Or we think about how it would be helpful in theory, but how much more helpful, really? I mean, if I can Google any scripture I want to by simply stating half a verse that sounded kind of like the one I heard that one time, why do I really need to know it, to have it in me? 
to meditate on it, to memorize it. Today we're going to look at Jesus' relationship to the scriptures, and in that, try to answer some of these questions. So, look with me at Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to pick up at verse 10. Jesus here says, uh, Jesus said to them, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this should be a familiar verse to most of you. It's here that we find Jesus in the wilderness with Satan. And when Satan comes to him to tempt him, his response every time is with the scriptures. It's been said that Jesus resists temptation here by quoting the scriptures. And I think that's true. But I also wonder if there was something else taking place. If in the quoting of scripture, Jesus was also calling to mind the story from which this verse comes. Here, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, and he's referencing back to Israel's story when they first received the Ten Commandments. Now, of course, we can't be sure uh, what Jesus was thinking exactly, but I can't help but wonder if beyond combating the enemy with the scripture, which is powerful in and of itself, he was also able to call to mind the story of the Israelites and how Yahweh met them and was faithful to them in the wilderness. What in this moment, when confronted with the enemy, did that do for his heart and his faith? How did it shape his belief of himself and where he was at and what he was facing? I don't know, obviously, but what I do know is that this scripture was in him. And what was happening as he spoke it out to the enemy was much more than an intellectual rebuttal. Now, this is just one example from Jesus's relationship, of Jesus' relationship to the scriptures. I want to look at a few more. So turn over just a couple pages to chapter 11 in Matthew, and then I want you to look down at verses 4 and 5. Matthew writes this, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now here, Jesus is sending a message to John the Baptist through his disciples. John was in prison, and he was facing death, and in a desperate and vulnerable moment, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Jesus if he was, in so many words, the Messiah. Now there's so much to this text, but what I want you to focus on here is Jesus' response. We see Jesus tell John's disciple that in verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Here Jesus is quoting Isaiah 35, a passage that is about the day when the kingdom of God will be inaugurated, including the coming of the promised one or the Messiah. Jesus then uses scripture to respond to John's question, and he actually does so brilliantly. While he could have just given a simple yes, we see Jesus respond with scriptures that foretold truths about what would happen when the Messiah finally came. Again, revealing beyond Jesus' true academic brilliance, a thoughtful and deep veracity to how he responded to John. He was not placating him, nor was he minimizing his question with a quote from the scriptures. In fact, it seems he was saying something so much more to John in his response. By quoting this passage, Jesus is reminding John of who he is and what he can and has and will do. And he's also reminding him of the realities of the kingdom that John was a part of, that there was a Messiah for whom he had cleared the way, that everything that had happened was true. From his birth to his calling to the baptism of Jesus, everything John had leaned into 
was worth it. And Jesus, by quoting this passage, calls John to find comfort in whatever lay ahead and to remember and to have hope. Let's look at one more. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 37. Again, here Matthew writes, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, here we find Jesus being questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day. And in this moment, they were trying to trap and embarrass Jesus with a question that they thought would be impossible to answer in a way where he'd actually come on top, come out on top. So Jesus, as he often did, responded to them with a quote from the Torah, or from the scriptures, And what he quotes is something called the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was the most essential prayer that was prayed daily by the Jewish people, meaning the Pharisees would have known this text backwards and forwards. And yet, before they can say anything, Jesus adds Leviticus 19, and by adding another scripture to his response, response, he answers their question fully, leaving no room for them to argue. And so we see Jesus use the scriptures here in a way that both protected but also provoked the listener to think differently about life and what was central to it. He used the scriptures as he often did to re-emphasize what was important and to also invite listeners to think and respond to the scriptures in a new way altogether. These are just three examples. Over and over again, we see Jesus regularly use and call upon the scriptures to bring truth and hope and comfort to himself, to others, and to those who followed him, and honestly, to those who didn't. When it comes to the scriptures and Jesus, we see that they were something he knew inside and out. They were something he had memorized, and not just for the purpose of memorizing out of obligation, but it seems he did so so that he could actually internalize God's words. We see that his knowledge of the scripture actually allowed him to explain a lot of things about the world, including his messiahship, in ways he probably wouldn't have been able to do without them. Another way to say this is that the scripture supported and even revealed who he, being God, really was. We also saw him use the scripture to bring truth where there were lies. We see him use them to fight temptation and the schemes of the enemy. We see him embody and obey the scriptures in such a way that it shapes his mind and his actions and connects the two. And then it seems that that connection leads him to deeper places of communion with God himself. We see the scriptures in Jesus' life brought comfort and counsel to people and that it was one of the primary ways in which he declared the good news of the kingdom. My point is this. Jesus' life and ministry cannot be separated from a deep practice of knowing and embodying the scriptures. And as his disciples, there's something in that for us. This practice of knowing and embodying is directly connected to the practice of meditation. In the Hebrew rabbinic study of the scriptures, the tradition Jesus would have practiced, there was an expectation that every rabbi and Jew would do this. While there's no actual command to memorize God's words, there are commands all throughout the scriptures to both know it and meditate on it. Meditation, despite what culture or your yoga teacher has said or has presented, is not the emptying of your mind, but actually the filling of it. 
and in theory with one or two thoughts with the hope that these thoughts actually catalyze something in you, whether it be peace or rest or hope. The heart behind this practice and expectation was that the Jewish people wouldn't simply experience and memorize and listen to God's word as a religious ritual, but that they would actually know it, meaning that they would have ruminated on it so much that they would not only be able to call the words to mind, but also experience and live into the power of those words as well. This practice or idea of meditation and memorization is connected to what neuroscientists are using to actually inform both mental mapping and the work around neuroplasticity. And in it all, at the heart of neuroscience, you'll find this constant refrain, what you believe and think about shapes your reality. John Ortberg recently put it this way, we become like what we give our attention to. We are spiritually formed or held captive by the words or thoughts in our minds. And so what we see in Jesus and in science all points us to the reality that we won't be able to divorce our thought life from our spiritual life, that the two are deeply interconnected, making then what we think about, the words and the thoughts we have in our mind as disciples of Jesus, one of our highest priorities. Which means we've got to figure out how to get God's thoughts and words into us. But that's easier said than done because the mind is a tricky place. What we think about isn't always helpful. In fact, many of us have wrong patterns of thinking due to emotional injury or narratives from our family of origin or words spoken out uh, by other people over us. And instead of having the truth, we have events and experiences and emotions along with our interpretations of those things living in our mind, setting for many of us a framework for who we are often letting shame and guilt and fear inform and, uh, inform and instruct us on how we are to live. Not to mention the fact that we live in a chaotic world known as the information age, overloaded with agenda that's marked more by half-truths and distorted and virtual realities than it is simplicity or honesty or even authenticity. All of this demands and fights for our attention, making the practice of the mind and the heart that much more important. Once again, John Ortberg says, words will inevitably abide in us. The question we have to answer is what words are abiding in us? If you did an inventory, even now, of the mind, how would you say your words or your thoughts are shaping your lives? How are they shaping your relationships and even your reality? And how many of those thoughts and words are God's words? If we, like Jesus, want to live into the fullness of the kingdom, of who we are, and of what God's doing in and around us, we have to be people who know his words. If we don't, I fear many of us will miss out on experiences of healing and comfort and warfare, in part because we aren't awake, nor do we have the knowledge or language for what we're seeing, and we'll either dismiss it altogether or fear it. But even more than that, I fear we'll miss out because we have disqualified ourselves through the work of the enemy in our minds, ultimately allowing deception and temptation to have the final word, and causing us to miss out on the invitations of the kingdom that are before us. If we don't know and memorize and work the words of scripture, of Jesus into us, we'll miss out on a life of intimacy and really a life with God. Now the beauty of the scriptures, of God's words, is that they're not simply information. Knowledge, literature, language, they are those things, but they're also so much more than that. In these words, there's actual power to unlock wisdom to reset and reframe our thinking, to even undo old, unhelpful patterns of thinking. 
and to transform them into something that gives us access to the mind and the will of God. Turn with me one more time in your Bibles over to the book of Romans chapter 12. And when you get there, I want you to look with me at verse 2. Here, Paul writes this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In this passage, Paul is talking about both the act of undoing or shedding an old way of thinking and ultimately being changed or transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, renewing mind is just fancy language for exchanging and replacing old thoughts with new ones. It's taking God's words and letting them actually shift and correct and inform our lives. And as we do this, we're told, we then know God's will for our lives. We know what God's after, what he wants, what his heart is. We know truth. So many of us say we're desperate to be like Jesus, to become like him, to put into practice what he did, to know what he wants us to do, what his will is for our life. Well, newsflash, this is step one. This is how we become people who are in agreement and in sync with both God's will and his heart. People who are actually able to combat the lies and the work of the enemy. People who are comforted and at peace in a world of tragedy and chaos. People who are unafraid and full of strength when the ground falls out from underneath them. Because in them are these words of life. And by the way, people like that actually change the world. Eugene Peterson talks about it this way. He says, Christians feed on scripture. Holy scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company with the Son. God gave us his words, not just so that we could practice and spew out some religious rhetoric, but so that we could know him, so that we could experience truth as it really is, over and against our past, over culture, over whatever is screaming the loudest, so that we can have a truth and that truth can set us free. So, how do we do this? How do we make scripture a part of our lives in this way? Three things. We meditate, we memorize, and we repeat. A word on each. First, we meditate. In the scriptures, we're invited to know God and to know his words. Knowing is about knowledge and experience, which means we'll have to read God's words to get knowledge about them and experience them, to have personal contact and interactions with them. If we're going to get God's word in us, it will require and really uh, uh, demand that we do more than just read them. It will, it will require time and space to actually connect with them, to allow those words to meet us in a personal way. So what do you do? You sit with them until they do mean something to you. You interact, you ask questions, you get more context, you define words and language until not just your mind, but your soul understands them. This is how they go deep. This is how they move from common words to transforming words. Next, we memorize. 
Once you've spent some time meditating on the words, then you should be familiar with them and know them. But note, knowing them and having them in your mind and heart aren't the same thing. We wanna move beyond having an encounter with these words to actually having them in us, in our heart and in our mind, which means we'll have to put them to memory. For millennia, committing things to memory has served as a foundation for religious, political, and educational instruction. Memorization has what scientists call staying power, this ability to maintain a commitment beyond and despite fatigue or difficulty. And, you know, we don't have such stark realities, but when I think about memorizing the Bible, I think of our brothers and sisters right now, the persecuted church who are in prisons or imprisoned, uh, who only have one Bible or part of a translated Bible or no Bible at all. And I, I know from experience, from conversations, and from the stories of those who are around the world that memorization is what has kept them. And while our circumstances aren't like theirs, we should also want these words like they do, and all the more even. We have to carry these words and the freedom they actually give to us, and we should find delight in doing that. We should be excited about getting to experience God's words this way with the freedom that we have. Memorization is the practice of mapping and aligning your life and mind to God's mind, and this is actually a gift. Get this, it's scientifically proven to actually free you up to think more critically about the world around you when you practice memorization. Memorizing God's words, putting them in your memory, uh, makes God's words accessible to you at all times. It allows you to think correctly or have words and language for experiences happening in and around you, to have words and language for other people, to have words and language for prayer, all of that freeing you up then to move into the invitations of God. We don't just memorize for the sake of memorization, but to actually train our hearts and mind to listen and to learn the voice of God. I know so many right now are after encounters with God. Well, when he speaks, he often uses his words and his images and his language. And this is how we know that these encounters are him. This is the way our encounters with God are shaped and not just shaped, but even deepened. When we memorize, we're shaping our minds in the moment to mimic and structure the mindset of the mind of God. Now, finally, we repeat. We repeat steps one and two, or if you're Brian McKnight, we repeat steps one through three. (sighs) (laughs) I thought that was funny. So we practice repetition when it comes to the scripture. I know you're all laughing at home. Often, we think we just can't do something because it's not coming right away, or we just don't have minds that work that way. And while it's true we all have different learning styles, when it comes to the scriptures, repetition is key for all people. Repetition involves giving something our full attention. It involves practicing and reviewing something over and over again. And by the way, when we do this, There is space for God to do a work of transformation in us, that work of correcting and rebuking and training. Because it's through the practice of repetition that knowledge and skills are actually built and even developed in such a way that we can embrace what we're learning in ways we wouldn't otherwise be able to. Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, the word of scripture should never stop sounding in your ears and working in you all day long, just like the words of someone you love. And just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they are said to you, accept the word of scripture and ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all.
Do not ask, how shall I pass this on? But what does it say to me? And then ponder this word long in your heart until it has gone right into you and taken possession of you. Repetition trains the mind to focus and to be alert, and it anchors the soul in a way that brings true transformation. And that's what we're after. Now, I do know that this can feel like a lot, but I want to be clear about something. This practice isn't, for the most part, a calling uh, to us to add something to what we are already doing. It's more simply calling us to do what we've already been doing, but in a different way. To exchange our words for God's words. To replace our narratives, narratives with his. And to hold on to truth over holding on to lies. To know his words and to have them in us so that we can become more like him. Your practice this week is all up at vancity.church scripture. And in it, you're being invited to lean into the practice of meditation and more specifically, memorization. This week, the practice is really about getting God's word in you, even if it's just one small step. Now, this practice for me has been lifelong. Some of my earliest memories are centered around trying to learn the scriptures at church and in our home. Every night in our hallway, there was a tape player Yes, a tape player. And from it would come songs that were laced with the scriptures. To this day, I can sing you songs about keeping your tongue from evil or about how I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And these aren't even my greatest hits. I've had seasons when memorizing and meditating the scriptures was easy and when it was hard. When it was motivated by candy and when it was motivated by desperation to keep my mind at peace. And I can say that having the scriptures in me has shaped so much of who I am and really who I've wanted to be. For me, this practice isn't just something I do because it really helps with my job, and it does, or because I need to have something intelligent to say to you all, and I do. I'm too selfish, honestly, for all of that. I do it because this practice for me is one of the primary ways that I encounter the presence and reality of Jesus in my life, day in and day out. It is the gravity within me. I shared, I think, with you all uh, a while back that this has been a grieving season for me, or it was a grieving season. And if you know anything about grief, you know that she is not a thing to be tamed. One minute you're fine, and the next minute you are not fine. And in it, your mind is often like a -a tilt-a-whirl. It's loud, and it's all over the place, and people are throwing up everywhere. And that's where I've been these past few months. My mind has been all over the place loud, especially when I'm trying to sleep, and confusing. I'll be thinking one thought and questioning another. And what I can tell you is God's having, is having God's words in me has saved me a thousand times. When I haven't known what's true anymore, what the right thing to do is, or when I can't feel God's presence or his leading, his word has been the one and really one of the only things that has kept me upright and level. His words have been my compass when the world is felt upside down. His words, along with his spirit, call me in a way that nothing else on earth really can, really to a deeper trust. They call me to see beyond my circumstances to what he's doing. The scriptures remind me that what I'm seeing isn't the whole picture a lot of times, and that God, even when he doesn't feel good, will be and is, because that's who he is. And I've cashed in on all of that. I've taken him up on all of those truths over and over again. 
And that's just one benefit to this gift. His word has washed me in this season in ways I can't quite articulate yet. They have held me and bound me and kept me and comforted me. And because these words are alive, they continue to testify to me and will, not only what I need to know about God, but prophetically what he's after in this season. His words testifying to new truths and new realities about his character. This practice for me isn't a ritual, uh, nor is it always easy, but it is essential for life in this world. Now today, I wonder, for many of us, if we are in need of some help. What I mean is, I wonder if there are some of you listening today who actually need healing in your mind or in your thinking, or who maybe like me are in a season or have been in a season of loss or heartbreak or emotional difficulty or addiction or compulsive thinking or negative thinking, and all of that is occupying or preoccupying your mind. Maybe you're even having nightmares at night and you need relief. I think the invitation to you today is to move from obsession or compulsivity to a space of meditation and peace. Maybe you need God to heal your mind or your memories, and I really do believe he wants to do that for you today. Maybe there's deep grief or a lie that has covered or consumed your mind this week, and you need freedom. And I just believe that today is the day for that. So to end... I'd invite you to connect with people in your community and even one of the pastors if you need to today about these things, to ask for prayer, to seek the Lord on how to find help in this space. And as you lead into this practice, may you know the goodness of God and the benefits of knowing his words. And I just hope that that will be a life-changing experience for you as it has been for me. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.